This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Karen Cambright, CFO of Tamer, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 423. experience of M&A gives you is it gets you very close to all aspects of a business and you, and you have to see the whole picture of a business um, you know the, the, the management team how they're remunerated what's incentivizing them what's the strategic position of the business how's the business finance and you know, it does it is it well is it a well-controlled business what's the what's the risks in the customer space and so on and I think that that um, you never know a business better than when you've either bought it or just, or just sold it From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Nick Luff, CFO of Relics Group, a one-time print publisher that reinvented itself for the age of data. Relics Group today has 30,000 employees around the globe. CFO Nick Luff shares some experiences from his past, as well as some priorities for Relics' future. After these words from our sponsor. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends all with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. Uh, a cruise company, so Princess Cruises, uh, which I know your listeners are always familiar 
lead brand within the cruise business, and we spun that out. Um, and I went with that business and became CFO of the newly uh, spun out business. And what was very interesting about that was the uh, having to create a public company from scratch. Obviously, the business was all, always there. The, the cruise business, a very good business, very successful business, uh, and, it, and it was doing very well. Um, but the actual sort of corporate entity that sits around it, if you like, just didn't exist. So we had to, to really, from first principles, say, well, what do you need to, to run a, to have a public company with a, a, a listing in London? Um, so we had to you know, establish a board. We had to establish, well, how's the company going to be financed? Uh, how, what advi- advisors are we going to have for it? Uh, what the, who's the people are going to be in the head office team? And, we, and we, we picked some of them out of the head office team of the company we were spinning out of, and we went and hired a number of other people. Um, but you really had an opportunity with a bit of a blank canvas to say, well, how, how's this going to work? And uh, what sort of culture do we want the, the company and its headquarters to have and how the relationship between the headquarters and the business? And that was really a great opportunity to really think through what is the role of the, of the headquarters of a, of a listed company and what's the role of the CFO of a listed company in that context. Um, and it was you know, very formative in, for me in um, being able to really uh, do something from first principles and, and start with that blank canvas rather than normally you take on a role, you, you inherit whatever's been there before. So that was, that was great. Um, and I think the other thing I'd pick out from uh, a few years after that, actually, I went through a couple of uh, competitive takeover bids. Uh, so that cruise company I was just talking about, that, that got bid for and eventually bought by Carnival. Um, and then I was with a port business that also got bid for and was um, bought by Dubai Port. Um, and it is extraordinary the amount of learning you can get during a takeover, um, particularly a competitive takeover situation, because you're under huge scrutiny from all parties. The, the press are very interested in what's going on. The board are questioning everything you do. Shareholders are questioning everything you do. There's lots of attention, lots of focus. Um, and the, there are people out there, of course, in a competitive situation trying to pick holes in what you're, what you're doing. Um, and so everything is scrutinized. You're under great regulatory uh, conditions that you would normally be as a, just an ordinary trading company. Um, so I'd pick that, that out as, uh, again, uh, a really great learning experience, and, and I, I think I learned as much in a couple of years of going through those as, as you might do um, in just 10 years of routine operation of a company. That's got to be an interesting time to be a leader in. I, for, for, I mean, do you tell yourself, look, I, I have to deal with this the next 12 to 18 months, but I'm going to come out the other side of it and uh, tell your, your team likewise, how, you know, how do you – how do you ease their concerns along the way? I mean, is there any, any takeaways you recall uh, from managing through that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because um, in both instances, it was extraordinary, actually, the, uh, how uh, uh, resilient the team was. Um, and there was definitely that esprit de corps of being in it together. Uh, everyone working under a lot of pressure, a lot of scrutiny. And, and as you identify, everyone's future career under threat in some ways because they were 
um, in all likely, if you're in the head office team, you're all likely to, to not be needed in, after, the, after the takeover goes through. Uh, and that was certainly, in the end, was the case. And it was remarkable that, that we didn't lose, I think the cruise company at the time, we didn't lose anybody in a, what was we a long, protracted antitrust process. So it was probably 18 months, two years that we were under that, under waiting to see what would happen at the end. I didn't lose anybody. Uh, everyone stuck with it. Um, everyone worked extremely hard. And, and just that uh, teamwork and people, making sure people feel, felt valued, making sure that they are um, actually making their lives work despite how hard they were working. Um, uh, I think there's a lot, a lot that I learned out of that in, in terms of management and leadership as much as anything else. Now, let's find out about uh, how you... Uh, step into the role at Relix. How did, when did this happen, and what was your, uh, you know, what was the incentive to make the leap? So, I mean, Relix, I joined about uh, four years ago now, so in 2014. Um, that in the business was already you know, very successful. It's done very well under its um, the current CEO. Been in there for a few years. Um, and was making a very successful transition from being a, a historic print publishing business to a, um, a, first of all, an online and digital public business, and, and then pressing on from there to become a, a data analytics business. And um, I actually had known uh, some members of the board and Eric from a little bit prior to them approaching me to see whether I would, would come over. Um, and they, they, they came out came to me at a time when uh, I'd done seven years in my previous company and was perhaps looking for a fresh challenge. It was good timing from that point of view. Uh, and to see a business that was, uh, first of all, growing, um, uh, but also one that clearly was in a very interesting space I mean, in terms of the, um, the opportunity to be involved in, a, uh, in what, to me, feels like a very modern business, a very, um, you know, having perhaps been in more traditional industries in my previous roles. Um, that uh, it was a great opportunity and, and one I didn't want to pass up. So you know, when, I, when they approached me and I met the team and thought I'd fit in and like the culture, I thought, yeah, terrific, and, and came across. So tell us about, uh, you mentioned that evolution, and that's, uh, in my mind, a little startling from a print publisher. Uh, obviously, you go into the digital world, but today you're really recognized as a data analytics uh, company. Can you explain the offerings today and some of uh, that evolution that had to have happened? Yeah, it's actually a great story, actually, and um, how the, the company has transformed itself. And um, you know, we, having previously employed um, you know, editors and authors and writers uh, alongside people involved in the printing process, if you like, we still employ the editors and the authors and the writers but now alongside them are software engineers and IT architects and data analysts and so on. Um, and it's, there's been a remarkable transformation where uh, having successfully moved online, um, which I, many publishing businesses, I guess, have done that, but then to take it further um, and start adding the analytics on top. And, um, the word characterizer, we're all about how do you bring together the, the content and data that we've got together with the analytics on a technology platform that is going to operate in a cost-effective way, in a way that's fast enough to be relevant. 
bring those together in, in quite specific industry circumstances to help a customer make a decision. Um, so how do you help a scientist decide what experiment should I do next? Which chemical, which chemical compound should I be doing my research on? Or help a lawyer um, decide should I take a case or not? Should I settle a case or not? Or a, a doctor make a medical decision? Or an insurance professional price an insurance policy? You know, how do you bring together the, the um, huge quantities of data that are potentially relevant to any one of those decisions? Um, you know, how do you apply the sophisticated analytics to uh, extract something that is useful in that decision making? Um, and do it fast enough uh, and, and cost-effectively enough to, to be useful to the to the end user. Um, and we do that. We do that in science. We do that in legal. We do it in um, more broadly across what we would call the sort of risk professionals in insurance, in banks, and so on. Um, uh, and and it really is that um, focusing on specific industries where you can develop and, and maintain the expertise in that industry, so that you know what needs to be done. Uh, and then having the capability to bring in the data and do the analytics on the data to, to help us that decision making. We come across a lot of companies today that have data offerings, but I'm getting the sense that this is a much more uh, tailored solution and, and uh, maybe industry focused. I know you, you focus on sci the scientific community as well as uh, the legal community, uh, among others. Yeah, so, so we, we operate in, in four divisions, actually, and they're the customer-facing uh, divisions. So we um, science and medical is one, as you say, uh, serving the academic and research community as well as medical professionals. Um, the risk and business analytics is the second division, which um, serves the professionals in insurance, in banking, and a number of other specific industry verticals. Um, and then you've got legal, which obviously is the end of the legal profession. And the fourth division is an exhibition business, which is a, a slightly different business, um, but uses some of the same um, data and analytics to help support that business. But, but by focusing on a limited number of um, verticals, a limited number of, of professional users of um, trying to make decisions, um, then we can really great knowledge and depth of understanding that means we can bring the relevant data, the relevant content, to help with that particular decision. And how do you price an, an auto insurance policy? Um, you know, what, what, risk, what data might you have available on the relevant individual, their car, um, their claims record, etc., um, that is useful, can be brought to bear, and help you make that decision? Um, and it's how do, you, how do you maintain and collect all that data, um, provide the analytics on the technology platform that, that, that does it for, the, for that user in, the right, in that situation. So when it comes to Relix's performance, uh, what's top of mind with you? What are those metrics that you pay especially close attention to? Yeah, we're very, we're very fortunate as a business in that uh, about half of our revenue is subscription revenue. Um, so it's very consistent, very stable. Um, so it doesn't vary day to day or month to month even uh, a great deal. Um, the other half is, is transactional, so it's more volume based. So when I'm looking at you know, how are we doing as a business, I'm uh, you know, looking at some of that volume information for the, to, that's going to drive the transactional information. 
um, you know, how how much is it? How much of the system's being used? How much of the um, are the customers pulling on the on the product? So that's almost a sort of um, the the daily, monthly rhythm you can you can pick up in in terms of the how the business is doing. Um, and we do have a number of other metrics, of course, which tend to be important to the for the more medium and longer term health of the business. So, you know, we want to see that the customers are using the product. Um, you know, if you've got a subscription, um, and that's great for us, but we want to see that the customers are actually then using that subscription to get value from it. Um, and so we're very interested in, in how how much the products are being used and how they're being used. And of course, we have a lot of data that enables us to, to analyze that. Uh, and then we're interested in, of course, how, how is it producing the right outcomes for the customer? So we're um, and we track NPS is one of our uh, net promoter score, one of our, our key metrics that we're looking at all the time um, to see how the um, how the products are performing, because that's what will ultimately translate into the um, into the revenue for us. Um, but we have, we've got a very diverse product set, very diverse set of customers, so there aren't. It's hard hard for me to pick out sort of two or three key metrics, but uh, but uh, you can. You can see from the revenue and the new sales that you can see the um, uh, how the business is doing from that. Do you enjoy? Do you think any greater visibility into the data, given Relix's focus on on these types of solutions? We we try to. I think there's always more we can do on that. Um, we we try to the, the using some of the data analytics techniques that we embed in our products. Um, can we use that on some of our own operational data, as you say? Um, and uh, we certainly do that. I, I think there's more potential uh, to do that across the business, but we're certainly um, trying to use all the data we've got. And we are fortunate in that, you know, compared to the, the old days of, you know, you print a, print a book or a, or a journal or a magazine and then send it out, you don't really know how, that's, how much that's read, who it's used by, what they use it for. With everything online now, you know, we do have a tremendous amount of data about what, what, the, what the usage of products are, what the customers need, how they're using it, um, how effective it is, and so on. So, and we, we do watch that um, very closely. Um, but there's always more, I think, we could do to extract more um, information from, from the data we've got on our own business. You described the business as being say 50% subscription, 50% transactional. Is it likely to become, you know, two-thirds subscription over time? No, no, not necessarily. And I think the, the um, um, although I, I use the term transactional, these are still uh, typically very embedded products uh, where you're often working machine to machine and with insurance companies, for example, and when they're doing giving quotes for to their customers for insurance policies. They're, they're pulling on our data and our analytics live as they, as they do that. Um, and so that requires them to very much embed it in their processes and um, have links to us, which are all, all happening automatically. Um, so it, it's almost very high recurring revenue, if you like, and, um, but they would prefer the pricing in that situation to be per policy written. On the first insurance policy written, for example, um, because that will better manage, help them manage their cost base. So, in a sense, we will have the, the pricing of our products um, in a structured in a way that suits the customer base. And given that, 
um, I don't necessarily see it shifting significantly um, because we're, um, you know, we're we find that that breakdown isn't particularly moving. There are still a number of customers who obviously want uh, the certainty of a fixed subscription and know what their for their budget know what it's going to cost them that year. But there will always be others who will prefer it to be priced um, more based on the volume they're using. It. When I visit the Relics site, it says Relics Group is a global provider of information and analytics for professional and business customers across industries. seems like this company has a foot uh, in the technology world and one in the information world. What world does Relics belong to? Well, I, I'm, I would characterize Relics as being not so much a technology company as, as a user of technology. It, it is about how do you use the, the best technology out there uh, and combine it with the analytical skills, um, combine it with the content and data, much of which we've got, which is quite unique, um, and apply it in those specific industry circumstances. So, uh, I mean, if, if, for example, a new big data technology platform came along that was better than the one we're using, then um, we would be evaluating it and thinking, well, should we, should we switch over some of our products to that? To use a new, tech, new big data technology platform, so um, I, I would characterise this as a um, as different in the sense that it's about how you bring those things together. We're not trying to do a, a point solution, and we don't sell um, content and data on its own. We don't sell. We don't develop analytical tools on a sort of consultancy basis. We don't develop technology, but what we do do is bring those together. Uh, and bring those capacities to, to enable those our customers uh, to make a decision um, that we're bringing all the aspects to bear rather than them taking those from three or four different suppliers. Um, we're, we're combining them and to give them a, an answer. Now, is the company the company's based in the uh, UK today? Is it based in London? The headquarters are in London, um, but... Um, we have about 30,000 people in total, and close to half of them are in the U.S. Um, we have um, operating locations right across the U.S., but uh, the risk business is run out of Atlanta. The legal business run out of New York. Uh, the, the science division, which we talked about earlier, is, is run in Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands, um, and our exhibition business run from London. So we are very international in our footprint. Um, uh, but the headquarters is in London, and the main stock exchange listing, which interestingly today is split between London and Amsterdam, but as of this weekend, we're actually combining that into a single entity, so the main stock market listing will be in London from next week. You shared with us uh, that, that early chapter with the cruise, inside the cruise industry, entirely different industry. Is there um, something about you as a professional that allows you to go from uh, such different industries uh, from one to the next? Yeah, I've been fortunate in my career and throughout it I've been uh, operating across a whole diverse range of industries. Uh, when I, obviously when I was training as a, as a finance professional, I had a number of different clients, but well, then when I moved out into industry, it was initially with uh, some quite diverse companies with different businesses. But I, I've always had the opportunity to look at different businesses and different business models. Um, and having done shipping and then the cruise industry, which although it's, it's on ships, is, um, is still very much in the leisure sector, 
um, then the, the fourth industry from you know, more infrastructure and, and then uh, a power and uh, gas company. Um, so I've, I've always had the opportunity to work in different businesses. Um, that doesn't mean you're not quite as much of an expert in, in one particular domain, but hopefully means you can bring um, your wider perspectives and you've seen different things operating in different industries. So um, uh, hopefully I've been able to do that at, at Relix. We've got a lot of industry expertise um, uh, in, in the business, uh, so I've been fortunate in that someone who didn't have a background in, in this industry um, has been able to come in and, and learn it uh, as I went along. We always like to ask for a, a finance strategic moment, and this is just, I'm sure you've had plenty along the way, Nick, but this is just a, a moment of strategic insight that you experienced as a finance leader. It might have been earlier in your career, or it might have been at Relics, where you were able to see an opportunity or a risk uh, that uh, led you perhaps to uh, uh, change how things were being done, point the organization in a, in a different direction maybe, whatever might come to mind. Uh, anything strike you? Yeah, I mean, I, what, what one one particular period which I mean everyone would have been through, but um, that I I remember and, and actually quite enjoyed was that was the financial crisis in two thousand eight um, when I was working for a gas and power company that had huge uh, commodity contracts and things to to operate, so lots of exposure to uh, derivatives and commodity derivatives and so on, lots of exposure to the banking sector, big cash swings, um, and um, I thought that was a fascinating period to work through when you were really testing everything you had learned in, in how, to, how to run a, the finances of a big company because you know, a lot of what we do, of course, is making sure we're managing risk and um, uh, making sure we're allowing for things to, to go wrong. And if not everything went right, you know, would we still be fine from a funding point of view, from a you know, liquidity for... Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and you really discovered in that time whether what you'd been doing uh, all that all over the many years to, to manage those risks, you know, was it going to work? You, that you're, you're, you're managing things to plan for that one in 100 event and suddenly you've got one. Or maybe it's even more extreme than that, maybe it's a one in 200 event. Um, and so, you know, when you were worrying about uh, your bank exposures, it was up until 2008, that was all very interesting in theory, but in my career, I'd never seen a, a you know, significant bank go bust, and suddenly you were really worrying about it, and then how on earth are you know, thinking right back to fundamentals of cash and where you keep it and so on, and I think it was a very instructive period to really test out your, um, you know, your processes and your approach to, to managing the finances of a, of a big company. Um, uh, and I, I certainly found that you know, useful and you know, people sometimes uh, you're worrying about risk and um, how, do you, how do you manage uh, the, the finances of the company and you know, it's very easy to get complacent um, and think everything will be fine and perhaps run it closer to the, uh, the line than you should. Um, but that was a very you know, instructive period for me as to learn you know, what it really means and have what you've been doing in theory, how does it work out in practice when you really are stress tested? So if you were to boil down uh, the experience of the financial crisis into one uh, primary lesson, what would it be? Well, 
Well, I, I, I think the, the big lesson is um, keep everything as simple as you can because it, it, you have you know, quite sophisticated uh, risk management tools and you can use financial instruments and things and you, you think you've hedged your positions on your uh, gas exposure or something and then you discover that the bank you've hedged it with has got a problem um, or you, uh, you've got multiple hedges around a bond issue you've done and suddenly bits of that hedge don't look, uh, don't look like they're going to be effective anymore. Um, then you know, my takeaway from that was I wish things had been simpler. Um, and uh, ever since then, I've said it, 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 it may, this may look very sophisticated and clever, uh, doing, uh, doing a, a bond in euros and swapping it into dollars when you want dollars. Well, maybe you should just do the dollar bond issue, even if it does cost you a little bit more, because it, if anything ever went wrong, life's a lot simpler and you've only got one thing to deal with. Um, and that was perhaps my big takeaway from that. We're about to enter the mentoring round with Nick Luff, CFO of Relics. Plus, I ask Nick a number of additional questions related to the M&A portion of his career. Our discussion continues after these words from our sponsor. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We want to enter our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire uh, future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you about finance and business today? I've always been um, very interested in business and, and working in different businesses, and, and we, we touched on it earlier, but I, I found most businesses, when you get close to them, are very interesting. They've all got challenges. Um, and uh, for me, I you know, I'm almost like taking on fresh, new, interesting um, business models, uh, and you're seeing that in spades at the moment, aren't you, with uh, the disruption that's being caused by um, the technology, uh, the different business models that have been around for many years are just is suddenly being taken away, um, and you're competing with uh, businesses that sometimes don't, uh, for many years, aren't thinking about trying to make a profit, um, and that's a very different dynamic. So I, I think um, that disruption that's coming from technology and how it's affecting uh, business models is, is you know, what I think is very interesting right now. Is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you uh, before you stepped into a, a CFO role for the first time, for the very first time when you, you know, you had that C-suite leadership uh, uh, <laughs> stripe on, on your sleeve? Uh, 
Is there some piece of advice you wish someone had given you? I, th- I think the uh, going back to what I was saying earlier. I think keep it simple would be would be um, would be my single most um, piece of advice to give to people. It, it's very easy to get. Um, businesses create a lot of complexity um, themselves, and uh, whatever you do, and you're as a CFO, you're always being uh, things put in front of you that uh, can look clever and uh, look like they'll um, make be in quite sophisticated ways um, help the company. But um, my advice would always be to just keep keep simplifying things uh, all the time to try and mean that you know, when the business needs to add complexity for the business reasons. You haven't made the you haven't made the finances of the company complicated. As long as we have you uh, you looking back, I have to ask you uh, a follow up about uh, the spin out anecdote that you shared at uh, near the front of the interview. You were named CFO of this uh, fairly well known cruise lines. Where were you in the organization prior to this assignment? Was this something you had been waiting for? I'd actually been working in the headquarters uh, in initially M and A, and then in uh, in the treasury function of the of the um, overall company, and had actually become CFO of the entire group um, in I think uh, sort of a year, eighteen months before the spin out. Um, but so it was almost sort of one of the first things that that I was working on when I became CFO of the entire group was. Um, whether or not we should spin out the cruise business because the the cruise business that actually was very well rated, uh, doing very well, and was worth more than the rest of the company put together. Uh, and uh, the decision uh, that we took immediately is that we needed to expose the value of that. It was being lost within the, the wider group, um, and the U.S. cruise listed cruise companies were more highly valued. Um, so we decided we needed to spin it out, and, and then I had the—I uh, I think it was a choice—because uh, the, the, to, to either stay with the, the parent company um, of, the, of the wider group or go with the spun-out cruise business. And um, uh, I chose to—I I actively wanted, having worked in a in a bit of a portfolio role previously, doing M&A and things across a, a, a quite a diverse group. Um, I wanted to get close to a single business, and um, the cruise business was a, um, it was a business I still um, still very much like and enjoyed working in it. Um, so I chose to to go with that. Um, Were you based in London at the time? Or? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Pr- Princess, the, the the main part of the cruise business was run out of Los Angeles, um, and the, so the CEO of the entire when the cruise business was spun out, the CEO lived in Los Angeles, and I lived in London. Um, so, um, uh, which has involved quite a lot of transatlantic commuting for both of us, um, uh, but also was, you know, part of the appeal of getting close to a, to a U.S. business that was that was doing well, and I spent a lot of time out there, so you enjoyed that too. And I think this is the type of opportunity that uh, is exciting, and yet it, it has risks, uh, brings risks with it. Uh, and curious about your decision making at the time. I mean, was it where you? You sat down with a pad of paper and wrote pros and cons on, on either side, or was it uh, was it obvious that this was, you know, 
too good an opportunity not to want to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it was an instinct, I think, and you know, when I when I saw that that was the way that strategically the the business was likely to go, I I, I thought that would be a great opportunity, and um, got make sure I got close to the CEO of the cruise business, um, and um, you know, when he did want me to, to move with it, I, I did jump at it. So. Um, uh, I mean, I did it ultimately in the long run. I go back and rejoin the parent company of the rest of the group and uh, finish, finish sorting out the restructuring, as it were, after the cruise business got taken over. Um, so it wasn't that I didn't like that business, but it, um, uh, it was a great opportunity to, that, I, that I certainly leapt at, uh, notwithstanding the point you make that it's not unusual for spin-out companies like that to then be taken over you know, in an industry consolidation move. Um, and that's, of course, exactly what happened. So it didn't last that long, um, but nonetheless, you know, still was it was terrific experience. Now, you came up, you mentioned uh, you were doing M&A uh, and business development, and that's a familiar track for, for certain CFOs. We find they, they, they go the public accounting route, or many go the business development route. Do you, uh, am I correct in classifying you as uh, business development M&A route? Well, I, mean, I, I did train as a chartered accountant, so uh, I was with KPMG and, and qualified with them. Uh, so I, um, I, but I didn't stay very long after I qualified. I always wanted to get out into industry, um, and uh, the working on uh, in the M and A team of a corporate was a great way to get into a corporate. Um, uh, and you know, certainly, that's something we do at Relax, and, and uh, it happened at the company I P and A was with then where you could join in, in the M&A team coming out of a, a professional accounting firm um, and then you know, move on into the business, and, and that's, what, that's what I did. Can I ask, uh, for other finance leaders who might be considering making a similar jump, or let's just say uh, more junior finance executives looking to jump onto an M&A opportunity or work within a business development group, um, there are probably some obvious things to look for to make sure that your the opportunities are what you think they are. But do you have any advice for those finance leaders similarly who might reside in sort of the accounting ranks today who might want to get that type of experience? What should they look for? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm biased, of course, but I would, I would absolutely advise anyone to, to get your hands dirty and get out and into, into, a, into a corporate environment. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, work on transactions that you have to own rather than be an advisor where you, you, you do the deal and then walk away. Um, I, I think uh, much better to do it as the, uh, as the corporate on that side of it. Um, I think you, you clearly need to make sure you join a company that's got the, um, the strategic ambition and the, and the resources to, to do things um, on that front. Um, I mean, I certainly hadn't really understood uh, what was going on in the sort of wider market sense back in, in when I when I left the accounting profession um, it was uh, just as the recession was hitting in the early 90s and uh, the level of M&A activity dropped off quite a lot so I sort of uh, I perhaps hadn't quite understood that and thought about that enough now as it happened I, I um, was managed to um, get working on a number of disposals and joint ventures and things that became the, um, the, the solution, as it were, to a, to a world where there was less capital around. 
I'd love for you just to really spell out for us the type of experience that you get from participating or, or you know, being along the front lines of an M&A deal or transaction. For those in, in other corporate jobs or roles, drill down for us on this M&A experience and spell it out. What exactly are they, they, they might be missing out on something? What exactly is that experience you're garnering? I, th- I think I think I'd characterise it. The, the, the what the experience of M and A gives you is it gets you very close to all aspects of a business, and you and you have to see the whole picture of a business. Um, you know the, the the management team, how they're remunerated, what's incentivising them, what's the strategic position of the business, how's the business financed, does it is it well is it a well controlled business? What's the what's the risks in the customer space and so on? And I think that that. Um, you never know a business better than when you either bought it or just sold it. And I think that that ability to therefore look at a business in, a, in an overall sense and from all angles and all aspects, um, I think that's what the experience of M&A gives you. Um, I mean, I you know, try and bring that to bear in an ongoing operational um, business as much as anything else um, because you can everything that comes up, you, you've seen – what when that when that sort of put under the scrutiny of M and A transaction, um, you know, does it still hold up? Uh, and it gives you that sort of uh, gives you that edge, if you like, of uh, really making sure things work really well and stand up to scrutiny that you get through a transaction. Will will uh, has uh, will relics uh, grow through M and A in the future? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the irony of my I always say the irony of my, my experience of M and A is I would say. Um, that the my conclusion from it is that for any corporate, the most value um, creating thing you can do is actually drive organic growth. Uh, and uh, M&A is not an end in its own right. Uh, and and Relics is, is very much emphasis emphasizes the organic growth opportunities. And M&A is actually what can we do to enhance and accelerate the organic growth, as opposed to being a, a an objective in its own right. Um, and so we are very active M&A, um, but the scale of transactions we do relative to the – and we're a $40 billion company um, – so the scale of transactions we're doing are not that big relative to the scale of the company. Um, but they're a very important part of our overall organic strategy, uh, bringing in capabilities, bringing in new market entry and so on. Um, but they're not an end in, in their own right. Do you view your role as, as helping drive that growth? I mean, is that uh, – you know, would that have been part of your role 10 years ago? Um, and and I, I'm trying to say the finance leaders increasingly have told us that they're helping to drive growth, and I think they're looking for the tools to help them do that. Uh, so mm. more, more definitely, definitely, definitely more so now than, than, than as you said, than 10, than 10 or 15 years ago, um, where the, you know, the, the CFO might have been more seen more as a controller um, uh, and you know, keeping the business and the finances under control and then uh, perhaps making investment, in specific investment decisions and doing M&A transactions, whereas now I think there is more emphasis on what's the finance function and the CFO doing to support the growth ambitions of the company and helping to, to drive that growth, you know, whether it's through you know, how, how targets are set, how resources are allocated, 
um, you know, how spending decisions are made. Um, uh, and um, I think there's a much more active role for finance, the finance function as a whole and CFOs to in, in that whole growth area. Yeah. Is there a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? And uh, something that you've done that uh, maybe eases some of the stress along the way. Anything come to mind? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, the, the key is just to keep it in perspective, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, and keep the wider picture in perspective. I mean, I, I, I very much enjoy the role of a, a public company CFO um, uh, and uh, enjoy the, the deals when they come along, enjoy the, the developing the business, helping drive performance in the business. Um, um, but, you know, you can just you keep going and there's always more to do. Um, and so you just have to uh, maintain a bit of perspective uh, to make sure that you, you don't burn yourself out. Um, you know, we're just trying to do everything and push everything. And that just means, you know, Keep the wider picture in mind. Keep the priorities in mind as to what, uh, what what really what really is important at any moment in time, and it, it clearly varies. Um, and you know, so, sometimes you have to recognise things that you'd like to deal with. You just have to let go because you, you too many other things that, that have to come ahead of it. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? I'm not a great um, reader of, uh, of business. Uh, Business advisory books and things. I, I actually tend to uh, like um, you know, sort of more historical books and read about leaders from different uh, different spheres and different areas. Um, and right now, I'm reading a book actually on um, uh, Lewis and Clark, who, who the explorers who sort of opened up the the um, western western frontier in the U.S. going up the Missouri years ago. And, and yeah, that, that's a that's a, um, uh, a great book. Uh, I think it's, uh, Undaunting Courage, I think. Yeah, David, David, I think that's David McCullough. Uh, yeah, and it's a great, I mean, as a, as a non-American, less familiar with the history, <laughs> um, it was absolutely uh, fascinating, the, the story of, um, and the determination and resolution um, in le leading a small group of people like that through an incredible expedition. It was, it was, it's quite a tale, quite a tale. Okay, our final question. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Well, I, I mean, that, you touched on exactly the right thing because I, I, I would say look, the, the priorities for the finance function here are to, to support the growth in the business. Um, and you know, we, we clearly need to, um, you know, the sort of uh, um, first requirement of any finance function is, is to stay in control of the business. Um, and but you know, once we've done that, we then need to see, well, what can we do to support the business? And you know, right, right from how do we make sure the finance function is as efficient um, and cost-effective as possible so that we're not using up resources that could be put, be put behind growth initiatives otherwise, um, through to um, you know, how do we help to do the analysis to, to support product development, to support market entry, and so on. Those are, the, those are the priorities for, for Relax and therefore the priorities for, for the planet. Nick Love, thank you for joining us on CFO
Thought Leader listeners, whether you've already ascended into the ranks of finance leaders or have only just begun the journey, your professional narrative needs a reboot. Join our email list at cfothoughtleader.com and receive my latest email series, Finance and the Power of Narrative. It's time to mobilize the past to achieve your goals. Thank you for listening.